Blog Talk Radio. And now, here's your host, William Powell, the king of DC media. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, my guest is film historian extraordinaire, Walter Frith, who will talk about fall of 2016 films like Sully and Snowden and his personal favorites. His bio reads thusly, I began my career in 1984 doing audio reviews for the college radio station, and I was later invited to write for the school newspaper. And after graduating and getting out in the world, I wrote for a couple of publications in southern Ontario. I took a greater interest in doing it again in the late 90s and then wrote for the Internet news groups. I was a member of the Online Film Critics Society, which is associated with Rotten Tomatoes. Also wrote for online publications in San Jose, Detroit, and Atlanta. Today I've sort of retired from doing it, but I'm still very much interested in what goes on in the world of film every year. So I see that Walter is on the line. So let me bring him in. Good evening, Walter. Oh, good evening, William, and thank you for having me on the program this evening. Absolutely. It's my pleasure, man. We have a lot of movies to talk about. So the first thing I want to ask you is uh, talk about some of the best films to see this fall. Well, the first one I want to touch on is one opening this Friday, uh, September the 9th. It's the latest film from Clint Eastwood, and it's called Sully. And this is the first collaboration between Clint Eastwood and Tom Hanks. Now, the film is based on the autobiography Highest Duty that was co-written by Chesley Sullenberg, who is the protagonist in the film, along with Jeffrey Zaslow, about the safe landing of U.S. Airways Flight 1549, known as the Miracle on the Hudson. Now, this occurred on Thursday, January 15, 2009. The airplane lost engine power after hitting a flock of Canada geese uh, during climb-out at approximately 2,800 feet. Now, um, what the film touches on is not necessarily the acclaimed heroics of Captain Sullenberg, but they also examine, from the trailers and the previews that I've seen, they examine the fact Uh, was it really necessary to land in the Hudson, and would he have been able to make it to the airport? And he comes under a great deal of scrutiny, from what I understand. Now, the last film that was similar to this one that I thoroughly enjoyed was Flight with Denzel Washington from 2012. He plays an alcoholic pilot who comes under fire um, after he lands his plane safely, but there are unforeseen consequences that follow. Um, That was a very good film, a very good dramatic film about aviation, and I hope this one, uh, I hope this one lives up to that. Yeah, you know, Eastwood does a lot of this. He puts, I don't want to call it mystery, but it's sort of like what was the one he did on the uh, Second World War, uh, Flags of Our Fathers about Iwo Jima. And there's this thing about who was really in the picture, and there's the changeling that had like a mystery element. He likes to do this kind of mystery thing where they have like. You know, he landed the the plane safely, but there's there's an investigation. That's right. Now, what you're talking about, the World War II films were Flags of Our Fathers, and that followed three World War II American veterans after they came back from the war. Now, Eastwood shot two films that year. He also had Letters from Iwo Jima, which was out about two or three months after that, when we got closer to the end of the year. 
And that film was seen from the Japanese point of view, and in that film it made the Americans look like the antagonists as they were trying to survive. And he, Eastwood is very laid back in the way he does his films. Eastwood is a minimalist, which means he doesn't believe in a lot of direction. He more or less lets his actors take charge. Eastwood more or less sets the pace, works very closely with his editor, Joel Cox, and they get the film crafted that way. But Eastwood is a minimalist director. He lets his actors take charge, and that's why so many people, in terms of the starring roles, the technical people that he works with, and a lot of the bit players that he's worked with since the 70s, um, always enjoy working with him because he gives them a lot of range to do what they feel is necessary to bring something to their character. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. He's very... uh ruthless about uh you know if the if the the that scene is that shot is like perfectly in frame, everything's in focus, everything worked, it's like cut, print, let's move on. Well you know Clint Eastwood is the only director from the last thirty five, forty years to have made the best picture Oscar winner twice. He did it in nineteen ninety two with Unforgiven and in two thousand four with Million Dollar Baby. Now, the only other director to have made the best picture twice in that time, going back to the 70s, is Milos Forman, who won the best hmm. picture Oscar for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and he did it in 1984 uh, with, with Amadeus. Now, Clint Eastwood hmm. is in a very select group. Uh, he's won four Academy Awards, and he's in that group along with uh, Woody Allen, uh, the Coen brothers, and Alejandro Gonzalez Inarritu, who the last two years won Best Director for The Revenant and for Birdman, which also won the Best Picture in 2014. So this was in a very yeah. select group of, of highly acclaimed people. Oh, absolutely. No doubt about Sully, it. No doubt about Sully it. Sully is the shortest film that he's directed. This is only 96 minutes long. Eastwood is used to the slow burn. He's used to two hours and ten minutes, two hours and 15 minutes, letting the films unfold a little more slowly. And this one is only 96 minutes long. Now, if you see this on the big screen at a select theater, uh, this is the um, one of the first films Eastwood's ever shot with the Alexa IMAX 65-millimeter camera. Uh, back in the old days, 70-millimeter cameras were in, and films like Ben-Hur were shot that way. And last year, Quentin Tarantino shot The Hateful Eight in 70-millimeter. Yeah. And Ben-Hur, the right. remake, was also done that way this year. And this will be one of the first films Eastwood's done like that in that format. So it will not only look good, but it will also feel good, and I'm sure it will have great sound and dynamic range as well. Nice, nice. I'm looking forward to that one. Okay, what, what else do you have? Well, the next film I want to talk about is one that's opening uh, the week after, on September the 16th. Now, we have Snowden, and I'm sure that name is a household word now um, in America and all around the world. Now, this is the story of Edward Snowden, who was a CIA operative, and he blew the whistle on the American government's NSA surveillance program. Uh, it's played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Um, his last film was um, with Robert Zemeckis. It was uh, called The Walk, about the famous tightrope walker who walked from one World Trade Center building across to the other. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is one of the most underrated actors out there. And uh, this picture is directed by Oliver Stone, of all people. Now, I'm sure you remember, William, if you go back to the late 80s and the early 90s, Oliver Stone had a very in-your-face approach to making films. I mean, he would get people riled up beyond belief. You know, films like Platoon and Wall Street and Born on the Fourth of July and JFK, uh, these films caused a firestorm of controversy. Yeah. And then Oliver Stone yeah. backed off a little bit. 
He was in. Uh, he did Nixon in 1995 with uh, Anthony Hopkins, and then his films sort of died out. U-Turn, Any Given Sunday, Alexander, World Trade Center, W, and now he's got Snowden. So hopefully we can see Oliver Stone get back to his uh, his very fiery days as a filmmaker and really add something to this film because this film needs it. I mean, no matter. I don't want to get political, but no matter what side of the aisle you come down on. A subject like this needs uh, to be investigated very, very carefully and to thoroughly show what Edward Snowden's motivations are, which is something I hope we see. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Yes. So talk about the next film. Well, we have on September 16th, coming out the same day as Snowden, we have Blair Witch. Now, going back to 1999, I'm sure you and your listeners and everyone else remember the film The Blair Witch Project. Now, this movie cost $60,000 to make, and it made $250 million back at the box office. So, you know, I mean, it's had a great following on the Internet. It's, it did very well in all the home media releases, VHS, DVD, Blu-ray, and I guess they figured it was time for a sequel. Now, this one is not... This one does not involve the original filmmakers in any way. Now, it was originally promoted under the uh, full title The Woods, and it was released um, and revealed as the third Blair Witch movie at the 2016 San Diego Comic-Con. The first 25 seconds of the teaser trailer harken back to the opening of The Shining, uh, which is Alex Weingart's favorite film of all time, and he's the director of the film. Now, he also stated that while the first film is about being lost in the woods, this film is about being chased. Um, now, it's been 16 years uh, since the last sequel, Book of Shadows, Blair Witch, was released. That one didn't do very well. It wasn't very much in the mind's eye of the public because it is hard to top the original film. And you know how we had The Exorcist back in 1973, and the other sequels were sort of forgettable. We had Exorcist II, Exorcist Three. People never really talked much about those or cared much about them because it was so hard to live up to the original. So we'll see if this one can do anything uh, in the way of... Uh, Telling its own separate story and being successful. Yeah, yeah, that's um, there's a lot of history behind that particular film. I mean, it's like a legend here in Maryland, and uh, the original director uh, Eduardo Sanchez. He's been on the show before, but it's it's really in that genre of like found footage, and that's really um, that's like a, a genre you see every now and then. Uh, you know, you see it in films like Cloverfield and films like that, uh, but it's interesting that they're they're bringing it back. I, I wonder if uh, this one will be, uh, this might be the best of the bunch, maybe. Well, the, the, the original Blair Witch Project was one of the last truly great acclaimed horror films that I saw. It's been very difficult the last 15 or 20 years to live up to the comedy films and the horror films that we saw going back to the 60s and the 70s and even in the 80s. It seems to be a lost art. Drama films still come out every year. They're still very well done. We're seeing the revival of a lot of the old stories like Sherlock Holmes. We're also seeing, of course, the Marvel and DC comics come to life now, and they're doing very well. But just as a personal opinion of mine, as a movie lover, as a film critic, as a historian, I find horror films and comedy films to be somewhat of a lost art, and I haven't seen a lot of great ones over the last 15 or 20 years, and I really would like to see, uh, see them do well. It's like westerns and musicals. I mean, they were huge back in the 50s and 60s, and even somewhat after that. Well, Westerns are sort of dying out now, and that brings us to the next film I want to talk about, which is the remake of The Magnificent Seven. 
Now, the original okay. Magnificent Seven is from 1960, and I'm sure film buffs remember that film very well. Uh, we have Steve McQueen, Yul Brenner, Eli Wallach. Now, this one is directed by Antoine Fuqua, who has worked uh, twice with uh, star Denzel Washington before on 2001's Training Day and in 2014 on The Equalizer. Now, uh, Ethan Hawke is also joining the film. Uh, this is his second collaboration since Training Day in 2001. And um, this one is getting some very positive buzz, and it looks like it will do very well. Uh, this film, we have uh, Denzel Washington, Chris Pratt, Ethan Hawke, Vincent D'Onofrio, uh, to name just a few. And um, uh, production for the film, uh, it took place in Louisiana, in Baton Rouge of all places. And uh, Now it says here, James Horner, uh, this is the... Uh -huh. This is uh, James Horner, who was killed last year, actually, in a plane oh, crash. No. Uh, yeah, James Horner was the, uh, the the music score man for uh, movies like Aliens, Braveheart, and Titanic, Field of Dreams. James Horner collaborated oh. on this film after he and Antoine Fuqua became close friends during the making of Southpaw in 2015. According to Fuqua, Horner's team visited him on the film set in Baton Rouge one month after Horner's accidental death to deliver the completed score. Horner had been so inspired after reading the script that he composed the entire score during pre-production. And uh, that's quite a story. I mean, his death was very untimely, and it was a shock, and nobody saw it coming. So, mm. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that one. I love Westerns, and uh, Denzel always does a, a wonderful job. He's got a good supporting cast there, too. He's got an amazing ability to go from making an action film, you know, something like Man on Fire, and then he can do something very dramatic, very historical, very acclaimed, like Flight, Glory, uh, the Hurricane, Malcolm X. Uh, he's got a great way of balancing himself between being a movie star and a highly acclaimed actor. That's a rare skill. Most people are one or the other, and he's one of a small handful of people that can do both. And uh, he's definitely one of my favorites of all time. Absolutely. Agreed. Agreed. Okay, so talk about film number five. Well, we have two films coming out, actually, from Ron Howard in the next little while. Now, the first one is a documentary. Uh, this also opens on September the 16th. Uh, this one is called The Beatles, Eight Days a Week, The Touring Years. Now, this is a very timely release because The Beatles just, uh, well, the remaining Beatles, uh, Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr, um, they just commemorated, and fans will remember, the last performance they ever gave in public. It was about two weeks ago. Uh, sometime in late August of 1966 was their last concert ever at Candlestick Park in uh, San Francisco. They stopped touring to work full-time in the studio on their albums, and uh, now we have a documentary about the touring years. Um, now, Paul McCartney just turned uh, 74 years old this year, and Ringo Starr is 76. And there's not a lot of advanced information on this film but um you know it'll be a documentary and it is listed here as two hours and 17 minutes so it will give fans quite a bit to look at and quite a bit to digest so mm. it's, uh, it's something that uh, Beatles fans definitely can look forward to now he's also got um inferno coming out now inferno this is the um the continuing story from uh the da vinci code uh angels and demons and uh, now we've got uh, the book by Dan Brown, and uh, David Coep is writing this, 
And we have Tom Hanks back in this as Robert Langdon. And Felicity Jones is Dr. Sienna Brooks. Uh, we also have Ben Foster in this one. And um, it's looking pretty good, actually. It's um, uh, Inferno is the fourth book of the Robert Langdon saga, but it's the third one to be adapted for a film. The third book is The Lost Symbol, uh, also written by Dan Brown. Now, this will be Tom Hanks' third time playing Professor Robert Langdon, as I mentioned, in The Da Vinci Code, Angels and Demons, and Inferno, and all three films directed by, by Ron Howard. And I like that. I like watching films where the, um, if the films have a major following and they have the same director, uh, like if you watch Lord of the Rings, for example, Peter Jackson put his stamp on the first film, does the other two films very well. Robert Zemeckis puts his stamp on Back to the Future, does the other two films very well. Richard Donner makes Lethal Weapon and puts his own personal stamp on the last three films very well. So I like that coherent structure. Uh, Steven Spielberg, responsible for all four Indiana Jones films. So when you see a director and a star work together coherently on film after film after film, uh, that's something that I enjoy seeing. Oh, absolutely. You get that, that symmetry going. I mean, like uh, Frank Capra and uh, Jimmy Stewart, and uh, there's just so many that John Ford and John Wayne. It's amazing. It's amazing. Exactly. So talk about uh, film number six. Well, um, coming up um, after that, um, we have a new Jack Reacher film with Tom Cruise. Now, you'll remember Jack Reacher back in 2012. Now, we all know the downfall that Tom Cruise took uh, for some of his antics uh, about the middle of the last decade there. Uh, we don't have to retread it. People know what happened to him. And um, Tom Cruise has mostly retired himself to the action genre. We're not seeing films anymore from him like Rain Man or Born on the Fourth of July or Jerry Maguire, we're seeing mostly the action-oriented films on the part of Tom Cruise now. Um, as you know, uh, Mission Impossible, there's been about five of those now, and he's also been involved in uh, making science fiction films, films such as The Day After Tomorrow and Oblivion, and now this is the second Jack Reacher film, and um, Jack Reacher Never Go Back is based on the 18th book from Lee Child's Jack Reacher series, uh, One Shot. The basis of the first film is the ninth book, which means this movie may not be a direct sequel. So you may see it jump around a little bit. It's sort of like uh, the Bourne films. Uh, we had uh, Matt Damon and the Bourne films, one, two, and three, the Bourne Identity, the Bourne Supremacy, the Bourne Ultimatum. Then we had the Bourne Legacy with Jeremy Renner, where Matt Damon did not appear. So sometimes the films can juggle all over the place and not necessarily be a direct sequel, something like the James Bond films. They'll take a book, they'll make a James Bond film. The next one might be a continuation. But if you look at the way the Bond films have been reborn now, in 2006 when Daniel Craig assumed the role of Bond, they started all over again from scratch. He had not received his official 007 status yet. He was still an agent in training, and he was still working his way up. So they sort of reinvented the whole thing over again, just like they did back in 2002 with the... Um, um, the Jack Ryan films that were uh, based on uh, the Tom Clancy films. We had Hunt for Red October, we had Patriot Games, we had Clear and Present Danger, and the Jack yeah. Ryan character played by Alex Baldwin and then Harrison Ford, they were older men. Well, when Ben Affleck took the role in Some of All Fears, we saw them start all over again from scratch, and he was a young man again. So you may not see this as a direct sequel. Um, now, Tom Cruise... Um, has worked with the director Edward Zwick before. Uh, he's helming this one. Uh, they did The Last Samurai together in 2003. And uh, Edward Zwick has also made films um, 
such as Glory, uh, The Siege, uh, Courage Under Fire. And, uh, you know, Tom Cruise doesn't have a great career today, but his films still make money, and uh, they do very well. Excellent. Excellent. So let's move on to uh, film number seven. Well, we have Keeping Up with the Joneses. Now, this one, there's not a lot of advanced uh, information about this one. I know you wanted to talk about it earlier, so I'll give you what I can here. This is from director Greg Matola, and uh, he's been responsible for films, mostly the comedy films over the last 10, 15 years, uh, movies like Superbad, Adventureland, and the HBO production uh, Clear History. Now, this one, Keeping Up with the Joneses, it's uh, a suburban couple becomes embroiled in an international espionage plot when they discover that their seemingly perfect new neighbors are government spies. So it looks pretty funny. It's uh, Gal Gadot. Um, we also have Isla Fisher. John Hamm is in this. Uh, Zach Galifianakis, uh, really funny guy. If you like the Hangover films, you'll probably enjoy this one. And Zach Galifianakis had a very funny turn in uh, Birdman from a couple of years ago. Uh, one of no, the best yeah. supporting roles in the film. He was really good in that. So this one is going to be for the, the lighter audience. Uh, this one is opening on October the 21st. So it'll be a lighter film uh, for people that enjoy their movies that way. So should be uh, should be interesting yeah. to watch. Yeah, John Hamm is, uh, I don't know, he's, he's very much a straight man. I know he's on Saturday Night Live, so it's be interesting to see how he would react to all that zaniness going going on around them. Well, the thing that curses a lot of actors when they come from television, and he played Don Draper for seven years on Mad Men. Now, the problem a lot of actors have, and this is true of Larry Hagman and uh, Carol O'Connor and Henry Winkler, when you play a character that is so iconic, it is difficult to get work after that. Uh, Robin Williams was successful at it. Robin Williams had Mork and Mindy. People just loved that character. But he was able to distance himself from that and go into films and do a perfect mix of comedy and drama and entertain us for years before his untimely death in August of 2014. So I hope that John Hamm can also find uh, can also find success in the movies and on television in different roles. And I should also mention that while on the subject of Tom Hanks, who we talked about earlier, a lot of people don't realize, you'd be surprised, a lot of people do, but a lot of people don't realize that Tom Hanks had a comedy series back in the 70s called Bosom Buddies. And then from there, oh, yeah. some film. It took, it, it took him a long time to get really good film work. Uh, he was in films like The Man with One Red Shoe and Bachelor Party and Nothing in Common. And then he was able to solidify a top-notch film career starting with Big in 1988. So there's two actors, Robin Williams and Tom Hanks, who were able to distance themselves from television and have a successful film career. And it would be nice to see other actors do the same thing as well. Yeah, I remember a bachelor party. It was it was, it was pretty funny, you know. It he, was, uh, like you say. Yeah, he he had some good work back there, but then you know, like I say, it just took a while. Big was this well. What can I say? The, in the box office, it was big. It did very well, and Penny Marshall did a <laughs> superb job directing that. I mean, she came off television playing in Laverne and Shirley, and she made big. She also made a league of their own about the women's baseball team during World War II, and she made a, a sensational film in 1990 called Awakenings with Robert De Niro and uh, Robin Williams um, about the doctor who treats the patient for encephalitis, and uh, it was a really good film. So, uh, so many people they they're 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 underrated. You don't they you don't realize their full potential and what they're capable of until they put it out there. And if given the chance, many of them succeed with flying colors. Yep. Yes, absolutely. Okay, let's talk about the uh, film number eight. 
Well, this one is a big deal for me. Uh, Birth of a Nation. We have this one coming out on October the 7th. Now, anybody who knows film, and we'll go back to the silent era, goes back to 1915 for the original. The original was directed by D.W. Griffith, one of the pioneers in Hollywood there. Now, that film is controversial to this day. It made the American Film Institute's top 100 films list in 1998 when they put that together. The film is controversial to this day for its glorification of the Ku Klux Klan. And even back in 1915, there was such an outcry over that that Griffith had to release Intolerance, which came out the next year in 1916. Now, ironically, uh, two days ago on September 5th, was the 100th anniversary of the release of Intolerance back in 1916. Now, in hmm. this one, yeah, in this one we have uh, Nate Parker as Nat Turner, Army Hammer as Samuel Turner, and uh, this one is getting a lot of a lot of advanced publicity, which is very positive. Um, now, Fox Searchlight Pictures bought the worldwide distribution rights for the film for $17.5 million, the biggest deal in history uh, of the Sundance Film Festival. Uh, Nate Parker invested $100,000 of his own money uh, into the film. Uh, the film is shot in 27 days, and the rebellion in the film in real life uh, took place in Southampton County, Virginia, between August 21st and 23rd, 1831. Now, Norman Jewison, uh, the filmmaker who did In the Heat of the Night, he's also made oh, a whole bunch of diverse films like Moonstruck and Justice for All, Fiddler on the Roof, um, he tried to establish a film project about the life of Nat Turner in 1969, and um, I guess he was not successful in doing so. Uh, maybe at the time they didn't feel the need for a remake, and uh, now 100 years later, it's uh, it's something for a new generation of fans to see. And the picture was all shot on location in Savannah, Georgia. Now it also yeah. says here, yeah, it also says here the 2016 film Birth of a Nation uses the same title as the title of the D.W. Griffith 1915 KKK propaganda film in a very purposeful way, said The Hollywood Reporter. Uh, Nate Parker said his film had the same title ironically, but very much by design. He told the magazine filmmaker that Griffith's film from 1915 relied heavily on racist propaganda to evoke fear and desperation as a tool to solidify white supremacy as the lifeblood of American sustenance. Not only did this film motivate the massive resurgence of the terror group, the Ku Klux Klan back then, and the carnage um, exacted against today of people of African descent, but it served as the foundation of the film industry we know today. And he said, I've reclaimed this title and repurposed it as a tool to challenge racism and white supremacy in America to inspire a riotous disposition towards any and all injustice in this country and abroad and to promote the kind of honest confrontation that will galvanize our society towards healing and sustained systematic change. So powerful words. Um, let's hope the film makes a very powerful statement. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. I, there was a lot of history there. And uh, yeah, just, I didn't know that September 5th, 1916. That's, that, that was, was the second uh, film. Intolerance. Yeah. Birth of a nation goes back yeah. to, uh, 1915, but the sequel, two days ago, the 100th anniversary of its release. Indeed. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. Okay, Walter, so let's talk about uh, film number nine. Well, we have Dr. Strange coming out. A neurosurgeon with a destroyed career sets out to repair his hands, only to find himself protecting the world from interdimensional threats. Now, this is the famous Marvel comic 
uh, with Benedict Cumberbatch in the title role. Now, before becoming a Sorcerer Supreme, Stephen Strange received training at an Eastern monastery. Now, Benedict Cumberbatch spent his gap year volunteering as an English teacher at a Buddhist monastery in Darjeeling, India. And he had stated that the experience was very profound and influential on his life, and he sought to draw from this experience in preparing for the role. Now, Benedict Cumberbatch initially had to decline the role of Doctor Strange due to scheduling conflicts. Uh, when, the film, uh, when the film's release date was pushed back from July 16, 2016 to November 2016, uh, he was able to commit to shooting. So they were lucky to get him uh, for this one. And this one is being released on November the 4th. So um, the last two months of the year, there are some very, some very exciting releases coming. So I'm sure if you know, you're know you part of the Marvel Universe, uh, you like the films that they've done so far, which most of them have been pretty good, uh, you should like this one. Uh, this one has got Benedict Cumberbatch along with Rachel McAdams, uh, Tilda Swinton is in this one, uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor, and Benjamin Bratt, along with Michael Stahlberg. And uh, looks like a winner. Looks like a, another surefire box office hit. Uh, for the Marvel Universe, in any case. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Marvel does Marvel does uh, good work. Just as an aside, uh, what's your whole take on the the Marvel versus DC uh, rivalry? It seems not, not like not much of a rivalry right now. Just Marvel. I don't know if Marvel's just making better stories or is it just better at uh, appealing to a broader audience. I think what they wanted to do, I mean, this is just my own personal opinion. I haven't read anything or seen anything on this. I think in the world of DC Comics, what they've been doing is they've been letting, ha- letting Marvel have the field for a while, and now fans are ready for the other universe now. So they, you know, they've let them make the Avenger films and the Captain America films and so on and the Iron Man films. And now, make no mistake, I mean, there are a lot of films in the planning right now. We've got another Batman versus Superman film in the works. Ben Affleck has got two or three films that are standalone that he's going to be directing and starring in as Batman. Um, These are coming out in the next two to five years. So DC is heating things up. The problem with these comic book films, now, first of all, I want to say, I'm not going to mention anybody by name. There's a very famous film director in Hollywood who has said that these films are ruining Hollywood. They are not ruining Hollywood at all. There's a market for these films. And one thing people have to realize is that when these films make $400 million, $500 million domestically and a billion dollars internationally, these films are providing the funding for the lesser films, the films that usually win the Academy Awards, films like Spotlight and The Imitation Game and Birdman and Whiplash and The Grand Budapest Hotel, films like that. These films get made because the studios don't mind investing in quality projects that want to please real film buffs and they get the funding for these from the massive, the massive success of the comic book films. Now, they also suffer from, from a few things that I don't like. They're too long in a lot of cases. A lot yeah. of films that are, that are heavily oriented for action, they were dismissed years ago by critics as having no story, no character development, nothing. They were just dismissed as fast food. You'd watch them and forget about them. What they've been trying to do in recent years, especially with the last two Captain America films, they've been trying to make the films plot-heavy. That's okay. I want to see a good plot. I want to see a good story. But you can't have it both ways. You can't give people two hours and 15 minutes of dizzying action and then expect them to concentrate on a plot. Tone down your action a little bit. Go back and look at the 
fundamentals of the first Superman film from 1978 with Christopher Reeve. Look at the first yeah. Batman film from 1989 with Michael Keaton. Look at these films and learn from them. These films realized that less is more. So give the, fee, give the fans a little bit less action and give them a little bit more you know, of a story. To, but if you don't want to give them story, then by all means just give them a straight action film like we're used to from people like Arnold Schwarzenegger. But to make films with dizzying action and to make them plot heavy, to me it doesn't work. You've got to have a, ba- a better balance and you've got to give one the edge over the other. So that's my take on the, the Marvel versus DC universe. And uh, I hope fans are uh, you know, entertained for a lot of years to come, but I also hope they learn that less is more. So, Absolutely. Well, I, I agree. Absolutely. Okay, so let's move on to uh, film number 10. What you got? Well, we have Hacksaw Ridge. Now, this one is from the infamous Mel Gibson. Uh, this yeah. one is um, about World War II American Army medic Desmond T. Doss, who served during the Battle of Okinawa, refuses to kill people, and becomes the first conscientious objector in American history to be awarded the Medal of Honor. Now, um, Desmond T. Doss only accepted one Medal of Honor. It had initially been proposed that he receive two, but he humbly declined. And I think I've looked up American military history before, and I think there are only a couple of people who have won the Medal of Honor twice, so it's, it's a very rare privilege indeed. Now, when asked how many lives he saved, he approximated 50. However, individuals that witnessed the heroic event said it was closer to 100. The mutual agreement was reached at approximately 75. Now, um, we talked a few minutes ago about the work of James Horner. Uh, James Horner was originally supposed to compose for Hacksaw Ridge um, due to the fact that he had worked with Mel Gibson on three films previously. But due to Horner's death in a plane crash, um, John Debney, who I don't know very well, uh, who composed The Passion of the Christ, uh, will compose this film. And um, it looks like something, if you really like uh, you know, American war history, uh, most American films about war history, especially Vietnam, the Vietnam War films, to me, um, have got the biggest anti-war message in them. So this one looks like it will be very good. And the one Mel Gibson film I thoroughly enjoyed was uh, We Were Soldiers. Um, going back, I think that was made in 2002, and I thoroughly enjoyed yeah. that, and I'm looking forward to his next uh, endeavor in the field of war. Yeah, he's kind of rusty. I mean, he hadn't done anything since, uh, was it Apocalypto? Which I never that sounds about right, yeah. That, one. that was back uh 2006. That's right. Now, he hasn't done well, you know. Again, we don't have to touch on all his troubles, but we do know that Mel Gibson has had a lot of trouble domestically with the police, with his own public relations, with his career. And uh, again, like Tom Cruise, he was sort of involved in a lot of uh, action films with not a lot of story. Uh, there was one film he did a couple of years ago. The title escapes me right now, but it was about a man <laughs> who was getting revenge, getting revenge for what happened to his daughter. And it was a violent crime action film, and Mel Gibson hasn't done a whole lot. And to be honest with you, William, I haven't followed his career that closely over the last uh, last ten years or so. I'd like to see him get his game back, but something tells me that uh, where he is now is where he's going to stay. But he's got a long history of, of good films, going back to Mad Max, right up to Braveheart, right into the early 21st century. So fans will have a lot of films of his uh, to enjoy for, for years to come. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's move on to film number 11. Well, we have uh, 
another bad Santa film from Billy Bob Thornton. Um, we had to touch on comedy a bit here. Now, Bad Santa, um, his, well, I saw the film once, and I saw it at a party at somebody's house. I laughed a few times, but it really wasn't my cup of tea. But uh, we'll see what this one is like. Um, now, it's coming out on November the 23rd, uh, 13 years after the original release in 2003. And uh, Brett Kelly, uh, a.k.a. Thurman Merman, will return. He's 22 years old now. And um, in the film, Billy Bob Thornton plays the son of Kathy Bates. And in reality, he's only seven years younger than her. <laughs> so just to, yeah, just to touch on it lightly, if you enjoyed the first Bad Santa film, uh, this one looks like it will give you some, some harmless, light belly laughs. So <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> all right, all right. So we've got film number 12. Talk about that. Well, one. we're getting into uh, December now, and coming out on December the 16th is one called La La Land. Now, this is from Damien Chazelle, who two years ago scored big at the Oscars with Whiplash. Now, Whiplash was nominated for Best Picture, and it ended up uh, getting a nomination for Writing from uh, Damien Chazelle. He did not get nominated for Best Director that year, even though he should have been. And that film won three Academy Awards, Best Supporting Actor for J.K. Simmons, along with sound and editing. Now, La La Land is about a jazz pianist who falls for an aspiring actress in Los Angeles. Um, now, at one point, the film was to star Miles Teller and Emma Watson. Uh, now, in this film, um, we have Emma Watson along with Ryan Gosling. So presumably he filled the role that was uh, going to be played by, by Miles Teller. Um, Emma Watson turned down the role of Mia due to scheduling conflicts with Beauty and the Beast, which is coming out next year, while Ryan Gosling turned down the role of the Beast in that film to appear in this film. Coincidentally, both are musicals. Um, now, the film premiered at the Venice Film Festival there uh, last week on August the 31st. So... For all fans that love jazz films and uh, films about music, uh, this one should uh, should please them very much. Excellent. Excellent. Okay, so do we have any more for uh, 2016? We do, William. I saved the best for last, actually. Let me tell you about three films that are coming out now. Star Wars. Okay. Who can forget now? We have Rogue One. Okay. Now, this one has yeah. been shrouded in secrecy. It was very hard to find information about this one. Most of the information that I have is what has already been released. Uh, now, the film is set before the events of uh, Episode 4, and um, it's, it's between Episodes 3 and 4. It shows you how the Rebels uh, acquired the plans to the Death Star. Now, we will be seeing James Earl Jones return uh, as the voice of Darth Vader. Now, David Prowse, the actor who played Darth Vader in the first three Star Wars films, uh, he was disappointed that he wasn't asked to come back and play the role. But Prowse is in the 70-year-old to 80-year-old range now, and I think it would be unrealistic to ask him to come back uh, to play the role right. physically. And uh, this one is looking very good. Now, we also have in this one, um, we have a cast which includes uh, Felicity Jones, Ben Mendelsohn, uh, Jimmy Smith's Forrest Whitaker. So the information I've given you, um, you know, maybe some people haven't heard about it yet, but uh, diehard Star Wars fans uh, know about it. And if you go to the Internet Movie Database, uh, there is a teaser trailer and a couple of others, and this one looks very good. This one looks like it could be as good as The Force Awakens. So even though it's not, it's a Star Wars story, it's not an official Star Wars film, but uh, I think fans will treat it as such. And it's looking looking very good, looking very good. Yeah, 
Excellent, excellent. Now, now the next one I have is, yeah, the next one I have is called Gold. Now, this one is from Stephen Gagan. Stephen Gagan is the filmmaker who won an Academy Award in 2000 for his brilliant screenplay of the film Traffic, which was directed by Steven Soderbergh. Now, in 2005, Stephen Gagan directed Syriana with George Clooney, uh, which was about a CIA operative in the Middle East. And that had an ensemble cast. Uh, people like Christopher Plummer and Matt Damon were in that one. Now, this one is about an unlikely pair who venture into the Indonesian jungle in search of gold. Um, this one is being released on December 25th, and it's from um, it's from Stephen Gagan, as I mentioned. He's also writing the film as well. Now, Paul Haggis, now he's the director who made Crash back in 2005. Uh, Paul Haggis also wrote uh, the first Bond film with Daniel Craig, which was Casino Royale, and he also wrote Clint Eastwood's Million Dollar Baby, so he was on a tear there for three or four years with films. Paul Haggis was interested in directing this after seeing a sample of Patrick Massett and John Zinman's script, but he passed in favor of other projects. Uh, he showed the sample to Michael Mann, who bought the script, intending to direct it, uh, with he and Haggis producing. Mann dropped out after deciding to make Black Hat, which came out last year, and uh, Spike Lee was later briefly attached to the project before Stephen Gagan signed on. Uh, this is Matthew McConaughey's third film about the search for gold after Sahara in 2005 and Fool's Gold in 2008. And um, again, this one is, uh, is looking like, if you're a fan of the people involved, I'm sure you'll enjoy this one. Excellent, excellent. So what's the, the very last film for 2016? The very last film I have here, William, is Silence. Now, in my view, going back 20 years, let's just go back 20 years, um, there's only been a very small handful of filmmakers that you can count on to make a good film every couple of years. They usually end up at the Oscars every three or four years, and that's Steven Spielberg, Clint Eastwood, Woody Allen, the Coen brothers, and the legendary Martin Scorsese, who was responsible for this film. Now, it's set in the 17th century, and two Jesuit priests face violence and persecution when they travel to Japan to locate their mentor and propagate Christianity. So this one has a very interesting piece of trivia attached to it. Daniel Day-Lewis and Liam Neeson replaced one another in projects that they were both grounded in development for years. Liam Neeson mm. was primarily set to play the role of Abraham Lincoln in 2012 for years while it was stuck in development. But when Neeson dropped out of the project, Daniel Day-Lewis eventually replaced him, and we all know that he won an Oscar for that role. Now, ironically, Neeson is replacing Daniel Day-Lewis in this film after Daniel Day-Lewis was initially set to play in the role of Father Ferreira in this film for years while it, was too, while it too, was stuck in development. Now, Daniel Day-Lewis worked... Uh, twice before with uh, Martin Scorsese on The Age of Innocence in 1993 and in Gangs of New York in 2002. So um, it's unfortunate he won't be in this one, but Liam Neeson is terrific, and I'm really looking forward to seeing him in this one. Now, when the project was announced, Daniel Day-Lewis, uh, Gail Garcia Bernal, and Benicio Del Toro were cast in the lead roles. Daniel Day-Lewis was originally set to play Father Ferreira, uh, Bernal was initially set to play Father Rodriguez, and Del Toro was formally set to play Father Francesco Garpe. Uh, they all dropped out of the project after repeated delays in the, productions in the production's development. Del Toro and Bernal were replaced by Andrew Garfield and Adam Driver, respectively, while Liam Neeson replaced Daniel Day-Lewis. So um, that's, that's about it. Those are your films coming up now for, uh, for the rest of the year, and uh, 
we've got a very this is this is the uh, the season that gets me the most excited because we have all the award stuff coming. Um, I follow this time of year very closely. Uh, I yeah. travel down to Toronto. I travel to Toronto. I live in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. That's where I'm calling from. And uh, I travel to Toronto where they have the uh, the Toronto International Film Festival. Uh, it's either getting underway now or it will in a few days. Uh, they have the TIFF light box down there. And the TIFF stands for Toronto International Film Festival. And throughout the year, they show a lot of art films. And they also pick up a lot of films that are hard to see in Canada. Uh, Montreal, Vancouver, and Toronto are about the only venues where you can see art films, documentaries, uh, films nominated for uh, live-action short, documentary short subjects. And if I get a chance to see a lot of art films down there, I plan to go down quite a bit this year and check them out. Excellent, excellent. So we've got plenty of time left here, so we'll just kind of touch on some of your favorite films. Well, sure, William. I'd be happy to. The first thing I'd like to say is I've often been asked, what makes you qualified to be a critic? And my simple answer is, well, if you understand how films work and if you understand creative writing, all you have to do is what anybody is entitled to do in a free society, and that's express your opinion. When I was in college studying radio broadcasting, one of our liberal studies was creative writing. And anybody who knows about creative writing knows that the three basic rules of conflict Man versus man, man versus nature, and man versus himself. If you can get those three things done in a film, show that type of conflict, you're on your way. Anybody who knows films knows that a film is made up of three acts, act one, two, and three, and the third act, it is paramount that the third act be the most important and the most influential of the entire film. If you can do that, and if you can express yourself clearly and concisely and write, you can be a film critic. And films I've loved over the years, my top ten films of all time, uh, from number ten to number one, are Goodfellas, A Clockwork Orange, Pulp Fiction, Jaws, Aliens, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, Star Wars, From Here to Eternity, Platoon, and The Godfather. So I'm one of those people. Wow. I, I, actually, I actually wanted to see Godfather Part 4. Godfather Part 3, as you know, was not well received by a lot of critics and a lot of fans. What they were originally going to do with Godfather 4, um, if you remember how Godfather 3 ended, then you would know that Al Pacino would not be in the fourth film. Uh, they were going to have Andy Garcia, who is now the head of the family, the head of the Corleone family. They were going to show him in the present. They were going to do what the formula was in Godfather Part 2, have the Don of the film, the leader of the Mafia family, run his affairs, and then go back and show his father, his father was going to be played by Leonardo DiCaprio, who was going to be Sonny Corleone, and they were going to show that whole area of The Godfather between 1920 and 1945 in that area where Sonny Corleone, who was played by James Conn in the original film, originally made his bones. Because as you know, in Godfather 2, they go from Al Pacino's story in the present to his father, Vito Corleone, played by Robert De Niro. So the same formula was going to come about. Unfortunately, the legendary writer of the Godfather novel, uh, Mario Puzo, passed away, and Francis Ford Coppola did not want to go on without him, and we never saw a fourth film, which is unfortunate, but I think we have a pretty good legacy with those films overall. Now, Pulp Fiction is a film that um, Quentin Tarantino, that was his second film after Reservoir Dogs. Now, anybody who knows the trivia between the two films, we've got Reservoir Dogs, in 1992, and Pulp Fiction in 1994. We have the Vega brothers. We have Vic Vega 
in Reservoir Dogs. It was played by Michael yeah. Madsen. And we had uh, Vincent Vega in Pulp Fiction played by John Travolta. Now, for years, Tarantino talked about making a Vega Brothers film. And I'm very disappointed that it didn't come to fruition. I mean, Tarantino's made some great films over the years, but he's very makes his films very sparingly, you know, about every four years, every five years. And since 1992, I think he only has eight or nine films in the last 24 years. Now, John Travolta yeah. is, is 62 years old now, and Michael Madsen is, don't show, I'm not sure how old he is, but he's probably around the same. That's not really too old. I mean, they could still get away with making a film like that, but I haven't heard anything, and I just know that Quentin Tarantino has got another Kill Bill film in the works. But right now, he wants to delay that for a while. He wants to turn The Hateful Eight, his last film from 2015, he wants to turn yeah. that into a stage play, I read, and uh, he'll be working on that for a while. So, uh, yeah, very that was one of my favorites. There. Yeah, it was very Pardon much me? like a play. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think Pulp Fiction is probably maybe five on my list. But what do you think about his structure? Because now his structure is more like a five-act structure or it's kind of it's, it's weird because you know it goes against the grain of people like Sid Field, these famous screenwriters who never really wrote much of anything, really. So I mean, what what's the deal? Why is he so successful with that that unconventional structure? I think the the reason why Tarantino is so successful is because of the fluidity of his films. His films are very fluid. I mean, you don't just you know you don't just see his movies; you feel them right through your right through your bones, and um, Tarantino's films are structured in such a way where they're visually encapsulated. Um, the camera work is always very good. Uh, the dialogue, he writes better dialogue than almost anybody in Hollywood. And I don't think his films, I mean, you're not going to see his films structured like plot-heavy films, you know, plot-heavy films like, like Chinatown or Casablanca or things like that. His films are, are mostly about dialogue. His, his movies are a short series of vignettes in many ways. Uh, Pulp Fiction, as you know, travels back and forth and tells two or three or four different stories. Uh, the Hateful Eight is more like a play. It's one story. The yeah. way it's structured. In many ways, actually, Tarantino said that The Hateful Eight was a lot like Reservoir Dogs, where the criminals are all together in one area, right? And he wanted to make a film right. like that, but he wanted to expand it. So I think the, the nature of his films, because they're so fluidly filmed and because you feel them in your bones, you don't just see them, you feel them so well. And his dialogue is just so appealing to listen to. I mean, he he writes the way that criminals and Western outlaws, he writes the way these guys talk in real life. I saw him on a talk show maybe 15 years ago, and that's what he said. He said he writes exactly the way you see in police clips and in documentaries about crime. He he writes about the way people actually talk. And, you know, it, I think he's to be admired for his realistic sense. Um, he brings reality to almost every subject that he investigates. You say reality, but in the way when I'm watching this film, it's more like this, the Tarantino universe. It's like I picked that up with Pulp Fiction. It's like you're very much in a quasi 70s, 80s, 90s weird universe. Well, I agree. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. Samuel Jackson said on the American Film Institute, top 100 films. Pulp Fiction, I think, was number 94 on that list. What Samuel Jackson said was Tarantino was able to take stuff 
from all other directors and filmmakers, but he's able to put his own stamp on it. Because as you know, he's influenced by Western. He's influenced by those, uh, those international B-movies about martial arts from Hong Kong going back to the 60s and 70s. He's influenced by a lot of that stuff. So he's able to take it all together and put it together like a jigsaw puzzle and put his own stamp on it somehow. I mean, he's one of those directors, if you know his work, if you saw his next film right now, you could sit there and watch it for 10 minutes and you wouldn't need any credits. You would know that it's, it's a Quentin Tarantino film, just like you'd probably know it was, a, it was a Coen Brothers film or a Martin Scorsese film. You only have to look at it for a few minutes and you can gauge in your own mind whose film it is. You, know, you wouldn't need any credits. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Okay, Walter, so we've had a pretty good talk here. So are there any other films you want to uh, talk about at length? No, I think we pretty much touched on that. Uh, thank you for asking me to uh, discuss my career as a film critic and what my favorite films are. And it was an absolute pleasure to, uh, to bring to you and the listening audience uh, the films we have for this coming fall. And once again, William, I want to thank you very much for allowing me to be a guest on the show. Fantastic. And before I let you go, just talk about... Um... You know, where fans can find your writings. Talk about my writings, you said? Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Oh, right. I yeah. Still... Well, yeah. Um, as I started as a film critic, going back all those years, I guess I've written maybe 350, 400 reviews in my life. Now, they used to be picked up by the Internet Movie Database. I started writing reviews back about 1996, I would say. That was the year I bought my first computer, and I investigated what media was out there for film buffs. And I came across the news group Rec Arts Movies Reviews. And the very first movie I ever wrote a review for on the Internet was uh, Jingle All the Way <laughs> with Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, the Christmas film from uh, 1996. And other films I wrote about that year that I thoroughly enjoyed and remember well are Sling Blade and uh, Jerry Maguire and Fargo and Secrets and Lies and things like that. Now, these reviews were put through, as I said, on the news group Rec Arts Movies Review. Now, they were picked up by the Internet Movie Database, which used to carry a link to all news group reviews. But because news groups are sort of obsolete today, the Internet Movie Database has taken down a lot of the links to the news group reviews. So a lot of my work is not promoted or seen now on the Internet as much. And... Um, I used to be a member of the Online Film Critics Society, as you mentioned at the top of the hour, which is associated with Rotten Tomatoes. And uh, back in the late 90s, uh, I wrote quite a few film reviews for them. Um, I was lucky enough to get some screeners. Uh, the studios sent me screeners of movies like Shakespeare in Love, American Beauty, um, and a couple of Michael Moore documentaries back then. But I haven't really, I don't really have anything in publication like any books or novels. Uh, my writing has mostly been just on film criticism, and that's that's pretty much it. And it's out there on the Internet. You just got to type in Walter Frith Movie Reviews on Google, and maybe you'll come across some. <laughs> All right. That's great. Okay, Walter. Well, again, man, it's been great. We'll definitely have you back on again sometime. Oh, William, I would enjoy that very much, and I will definitely come back. Excellent. Okay. Have a great night. You too. Take care now. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. All right, dear listeners, remember to do something for your career every day and bring a leg. Good night.